Hello, hello. Good evening. Good day. How are you doing? I hope you're doing all, all doing great. Welcome to the latest episode of Ask Abhijit. Uh, today we are discussing science, technology and all of that good stuff. So before we begin, let me greet all of you. Let's see who all is there. I can see Aditya, Tulsi, Shweta, Gaurav, Crazy Brains, Saptar, Nab, Vishnu, Rahul, Srinivas, Dikshit, Jais, Jasmine, Vasu, Pranav, Krishna, Tanu's World, Bro, Lage Raho Online, Sparsh, Aditi, Shivam, Akshit, Gitu Parna, Vaishali, Roshan, R2, um, Pratham, Akhilesh, Balaji, Divyang, Avinash, Thinking, Herbie, Jetia, Gada, Potul, Potul, Komal, Shubham, Rishikesh, snatch, Sketch with Sneha, um, Akash Rathor, Trupti, and uh, lots of other people, lots of other people. Good evening, good day, all of you, wherever you are. Great to have you all on the show. So we will discuss science, technology, and uh, related matters today. So let us begin with the questions. And uh, what is the first question? Right. The first question is appropriate for uh, what's happening right now, the James Webb Space Telescope. So uh, lots of people have asked me questions about this. I've taken a few which represent all the questions, uh, hopefully. So uh, Shweta says, how do you feel about analyzing the mind-blowing images from the JWST? Any new findings, more details on the universe would be great. Amruta says the JWST uh, showed the most stunning images, both awe-inspiring and intimidating. What are your thoughts as an astrophysicist? Do you feel we are really mature enough to understand these phenomena? Um, Pratham says the James Webb Telescope captured in astonishing uh, phenomena images. Can it really time travel? How do we do time traveling? Is it going back in time or going to a different location? Running where the clocks are running slower than Earth and so on. Yeah. So... Lots of people have asked me about this because it's something that's happened very recently. They, um, NASA has this week, I believe, released images, a bunch of images, four or five images that the James Webb Space Telescope has taken. The first batch of images have been released. Let's take a look at the images and let's see what uh, they are telling us. So this is, let me, uh, I hope you can all hear me. This is the Instagram account of the James Webb 
telescope nasa web is the account id or whatever it's called and as you can see it has released a bunch of new images i think there are five images there is a spectrum of an exoplanet and there's something more so let's take a look at what the JW, so so what is the jwst what is the james webb space telescope it's a new telescope it's a much more powerful space telescope than the previous one that uh, nasa had put up which was the hubble the hubble went into orbit i believe in the 1990s if i'm not mistaken it, the hubble is still functional it's in orbit around the earth the james webb space telescope is not in orbit around the earth it's in orbit around the l2 lagrange point which is about a million i think kilometers from the earth uh, so it's uh, directly between it's directly behind the earth as in a straight line with the sun so if you take the sun and the earth straight line jwst is right behind that about a million kilometers of approximately from the earth roughly uh, so it's in the shade of the earth it doesn't see the sun that's why it's cool it stays cool so this temp this uh, telescope it is designed to remain extremely cool so that it can detect very cool infrared wavelengths and that's why it's able to peer much deeper into space and uh, essentially time travel so uh, let me get get back to you after in a moment about what the time travel thing means so this is one of the instruments okay this is the spectrograph the near infrared spectrograph so this spectrograph at a single time it can take spectra from hundreds of targets at the, sa at the same time and as you can see these are all these lines these horizontal lines are spectra what is a spectrum it's like a it's like a light signature it's like a light library that comes from one source what are the different chemical elements present in that light source and so on so that is something you can see from the spectrum so this instrument can take uh, can capture infrared spectra from hundreds of targets at the same time so that's one of the great very interesting and in capabilities of the jwst this is a new uh, release this is the spectrum i believe a spectrum of an exoplanet so which exoplanet it is it is the exoplanet wasp 96b and it has detected the unmistakable unambiguous signature of water which indicates that there are clouds in, in this exoplanet now this is a this is an exoplanet called a hot jupiter it's very close to its star it uh, it orbits its star i think once in three or so earth days it's a very very tight orbit it's a very hot star uh, 1000 degrees so no about 500 600 degrees celsius i think the details are here yeah and yeah so it's able to it's been able to detect water in the atmosphere of this planet that's interesting this is a very interesting image this is called stefan's quintet five galaxies locked together i think four of these galaxies are actually colliding at the same time they are interacting gravitationally this is a gravitational dance between four galaxies and there's a fifth one, fifth object as well in this so four galaxies essentially colliding in very very slow motion this collision will go go on for maybe over a billion years eventually i believe uh, there could be the output of the of the collision could be a merger and a new massive galaxy so this is what that looks like through the lens through the eyes of the james webb space telescope uh, these are some images of of jupiter that the telescope has taken in infrared light i believe this is a very interesting image this is the deepest sharpest infrared image ever taken at the universe 
and this uh, so what what is how do we put this image in context so imagine you have a grain of sand a single grain of sand you put it in front of you and you look at the sky the amount of sky that this one grain of sa- sand is able to blot out that is what is in this image that's how small it is that's how deep this telescope has been able to look so this is nothing but a small fraction of the hubble deep ultra deep field and it's able to uh, look at this in unprecedented detail right now what else do we have we have this uh, i think it's called what is this called cat's eye nebula southern ring nebula it's a it's a southern ring nebula it's a planetary nebula this is what happens when a star dies when a sun like star gives off its outer layers of gas this is what happens our sun will eventually meet this fate so we still have the star in the center it has given off all of its uh, much of its outer layers it became a red giant and eventually the the outer layers just went off because the sun was the star was not able to uh, hold them together so this is what happens so this is unprecedented detail once again and this is uh, the cosmic cliffs part of the karina nebula once again unprecedented detail so now how do we put these images in the right context is what we have to think about so the best way of putting these images in the correct context is to compare them with the images that the hubble space telescope gave us so let me share that and let's do a comparison to understand the true power of this tel- of the new telescope so this is a comparison all right the james webb space telescope versus hubble so let me uh, bigify this enlarge embiggen this yeah uh, so this is what hubble showed us very interesting nice image lot of detail and now see what the james webb telescope is able to do look at the extraordinary amount of detail the james webb space telescope has uncovered it's like a, a short sighted person putting on glasses for the first time and suddenly you can see the world in its real depth and sharpness so that's that's how it is so as you can see the hubble image which i believe is in visible light is quite opaque the clouds the clouds are quite opaque you can't really see the see through the clouds but because the jwst operates in infrared wavelengths it can peer through the clouds and see what's inside and that's what you see in much greater depth sharpness and resolution so this is the karina nebula let's see what else we have so this is the other nebula that we spoke about this is what hubble showed us very nice image very interesting now see what the jwst has done incredible detail incredible detail we can see right through the clouds and see what's behind and see far more uh, depth and resolution of this image then this is the stefan squintet that we spoke about this is what hubble showed us this is the hubble image let me uh, yeah the, now you should be able to see it properly this is the image from hubble as you can see the night sky is quite dark we we don't see much detail and here we see way more detail look at that we can see way more detail about what's happening here so that's the uh, amount of detail the jwst is able to show us and this is just the beginning this is the, just the beginning this is the hubble image of the ultra deep field as you can see lot of detail lot of galaxies but see what the james webb telescope has done incredible amount of sharpness and way more detail 
and what you see here is these various galaxies that are all smeared out and squashed and and uh, you know the shapes are distorted this is called gravitational lensing in which unseen matter essentially dark matter acts as a, as a lens as a uh, just like an optical lens does and it shows you what's behind and shows you things in a more magnified manner and of course it produces distortion of light because when you have a certain amount of mass mass amount, massive amount of mass in space light has to go around it light cannot travel in a straight line because it, the the mass curves space time itself general relativity so this is what you see this is uh, an exemplification of that and so on so these are the images from the james webb telescope revolutionary revolutionary images very great detail unprecedented detail and uh, so exciting we're going to see this is just the beginning this is just a small sampler amuse bush it's it's a it's a starter before the main course before the main meal so uh, this is the kind of detail this telescope is able to show us now what about time travel why do we why do some people say it's a time traveling telescope it's not going back in time what is what it is doing is this see um when when the initially in the initial moment of the big bang all of the universe was just energy and uh, about 250 million or so years after the big bang um the universe first became transparent and light was able to shine for the first time so that is the first initial light the afterglow of the big bang you could call it yeah and that was very hot light the universe was quite small at the time compared to what uh, the, to the size it is now so the radiation the afterglow of the big bang was high frequency light hot light as the universe expanded and cooled the light was stretched out it was red shifted and the oldest light in the universe is now extremely extremely it's no longer visible it's uh, the cmbr the cosmic microwave background radiation is in the millimeter uh, range yeah that sort of uh, those sort of frequencies wavelengths millimeter wavelengths and the oldest light in the universe is is redshifted so badly that it's undetectable to regular telescopes like the hubble telescope and your backyard astronomy telescopes and so on so in order to detect that ancient light we need something like the hubble or like the jwst and to detect that it has to be kept very very cold because infrared light is heat it's heat right so uh, it needs to be incredibly cold and that's why it's been placed at the l2 lagrange point in the shade of the earth so that the sun's rays don't reach there it remains cold and that's why it's able to detect this very very ancient and very faint and very cold light and that's why it's going to be able to show us images essentially what of what could be the first objects that were visible in the universe you know the first the very first galaxies the very first structure formation in the universe and so on that's why we say it's traveling back in time because it's showing us images of, of the universe that are like more than 13.5 billion years old so we are looking back in time that's why we say it's a time traveling telescope it's not really going back in time it's it's showing us it's going to show us uh pictures images of the universe as it was a long 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 time ago in its very infancy so that's why it's called uh, well it's typically journalists who come up with these names time traveling telescope god particle all that stuff they are not scientific names but yeah these names catch on even the big bang was a i think i don't know who came up with it i think it was fred hoyle or somebody who coined this slightly um 
derogatory name but it stuck and journal it it caught on among the journalistic fraternity and that's why it's part of popular imagination now anyhow so that's a little bit about the james webb space telescope uh looking forward to more data coming in there's so much more science that this telescope is going to do it's going to revolutionize astronomy revolutionize hopefully our understanding of the universe maybe throw light on so many uh, hidden aspects how was the universe in the, in the very beginning what is dark matter who knows we may even get get to understand that better understanding exoplanets what they are like the composition the spectral composition the atmospheric composition of exoplanet of exoplanets maybe even some solar system astronomy understanding jupiter saturn etc our own solar system better that also will happen and so on so it's just the beginning a very exciting phase in astronomy and physics astrophysics right question number 2 is by shubham can green hydrogen be used as a fuel in the future what are your thoughts on green hydrogen all right green hydrogen so first of all my dear friends let's understand this is not hydrogen that is green in color all right hydrogen is colorless as far as i know it is colorless yes what do you mean by green hydrogen green hydrogen is hydrogen that is produced using renewable energy sustainable energy which doesn't have a so essentially the hydrogen that is produced without uh, causing a carbon footprint what do we what do we mean by that so how is hydrogen typically uh, produced commercially industrially etc it is produced via electrolysis of water water as i am sure you all know is its chemical uh, formula composition is h2o two atoms of hydrogen and one atom of oxygen come together to form the uh, to form the water molecule h2o molecule right so if you have water you pass an electric current through it then you have a process called electrolysis which dissociates the molecules into their uh, component atoms and that gives off oxygen and hydrogen now there are processes of separating these two things and, and we need to be careful because hydrogen is a very flammable gas and so on so, so that's how it's done and the reverse process happens in uh, rocket engines there are certain rocket engines which use uh, hydrogen fuel and oxygen fuel you bring them together exothermic reaction very enormously exothermic reaction and the output of that is just water vapor extremely high pressure high temperature water vapor yeah so so electrolysis is the is the this the process of dissociating water into hydrogen and oxygen by passing electric current through it that's what electrolysis is now typically electricity is produced by burning fossil fuels either by burning coal or burning gas or whatever else so all electricity most of the electricity that we use today has a carbon footprint you need to release co2 carbon dioxide into the atmosphere to produce this electricity however if you produce electricity through renewable sources like wind power hydropower solar electricity etc then it has a what you could call a negligible or or all almost zero carbon footprint so if you take such electricity that is produced through sustainable means and you use that to produce hydrogen from from water through electrolysis that is what we call green hydrogen because it doesn't have a carbon footprint and we are uh, it doesn't uh, the production of such hydrogen does not uh, cause harm to the planet it does not uh, add to the carbon burden 
of the planet in the atmosphere, right? So that is what we mean by green hydrogen. Now, hydrogen is a very good fuel. Very good fuel. It's used in rocket engines. So you can see how, how energetic it can be. Yeah, the uh, specific impulse or whatever you call it uh, uh, is, is very high compared to uh, fossil fuels like uh, gasoline, petrol, kerosene, which is aviation fuel, diesel, and so on. So uh, it can certainly be used and uh, engines can be, can be uh, uh, produced which use hydrogen as fuel. Uh, so yeah, it's 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 a promising fuel. You would need to tweak certain technologies in order to use hydrogen, maybe liquid hydrogen. I mean, there are challenges. Uh, keeping hydrogen in the liquid state uh, requires a lot of well, it's a it's a cryogenic fuel, right? Which means it's a very low temperature fuel. You need to refrigerate it to very low temperatures. I'm not sure what is the the boiling point of hydrogen, which is the point at which its liquid form turns into gas, but it's a very low temperature. So to keep it liquid, you would need to uh, have pressurized canisters at low temperatures, yeah, because uh, the pressure is very high, and so on. So these are challenges, but yes, it can certainly be used if you develop the technologies. Developing technology typically takes a few years, and all technological uh, obstacles can be overcome with engineering. So I think if you can produce hydrogen in a sustainable a fashion without adding to the carbon footprint, without adding to the carbon burden of the planet, of the atmosphere, then it's a very promising fuel. So I think it's it's a promising fuel. I think India is taking significant amounts of initiatives vis-a-vis uh, -vis green hydrogen. So I think it's it's great. India, I think it's essentially, in some ways, it's leading the world in, in uh, moving to green technologies and sustainable uh, energy sources, the, the Solar Alliance. India is the founding member of that alliance. And uh, we have uh, we, we have uh, we, we have stated that we will move entirely to, to uh, sustainable sources of energy by 20, uh, 2070, 2070 or so, right? That's the uh, statement that's been made. So I think we could be very much on track to do that. It takes time, but we need to develop this technology step by step. And I think it's very promising. So, yeah. So, these are my thoughts about green hydrogen. Right. Aditi says, our body recognizes anything foreign that enters our body and starts to attack it. That's what the immune system does. Yes. But what about food? Food is also foreign, even though it's essential for us. Why doesn't our body attack it too? <laughs> this is a very good question. This is a very good question. Excellent question. Good to see intelligent questions. Right. So you are right, Aditi, that uh, you, anything foreign, any foreign object that enters our body is immediately attacked. Let's say you are doing woodworking, you know, carpentry, and a splinter of wood gets into your hand. It's very painful, very annoying, and you can see very quickly a reaction, you know, the entire uh, re uh, uh, Part of the skin around that flesh turns red and there's a swelling and then eventually if you don't remove it, there'll be formation of pus, which is the the byproduct of the immune attack on that system. And eventually the thing, the thing will be expelled and the body, the, the, that part of the body will heal itself rapidly. So that is the very visible immune reaction. Attack, attack the foreign object. And as you say, food is foreign to us. So one of the examples of um, this immune attack on foreign objects is when somebody receives an organ transplant, a kidney or a heart or, or a lung or whatever it is, right? The, the immune system attack on this, these foreign objects 
foreign organs, even though they are vital to your survival, is very true, is very real. And because of the, this very real phenomenon, people have to be given immunosuppressant drugs, entire cocktails of drugs, in order to keep the immune system, prevent the immune system from destroying that, uh, that transplanted organ. Yes, so it is true that anything foreign that enters the body is immediately recognized by the immune system as something foreign, and it is attacked and it is destroyed. Take no enemies, destroy it. That's how it is. And yet we eat food. So why doesn't, uh, so what happens when we eat food? Okay, let's say I take a carrot. I don't have one right now for demonstration purposes, but let's say I'm eating a carrot. What do we do with the carrot? We put it on, in our mouth and we start attacking it right away. Chew, 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 chew. We chew it, chew it, chew it. Right? We chew it down, we mash it up, it mixes with our saliva, which has enzymes which break up the, the, the food. We swallow it. Inside our food, inside our stomach, we have acid hydrochloric acid, which further destroys that food and breaks it apart, right? And we have enzymes. And then it, it's uh, transferred to our um, small intestine and large intestine. Everything of value is taken out of the food. It is totally destroyed, right? So isn't that what happens? So what is done is that anything that is potentially harmful in the food is neutralized. Let's say you eat a carrot that you have not washed. God forbid, the gods forbid, don't eat a, car a carrot that you got from the market, you did not wash it, you did not remove the skin, possibly, and maybe there are harmful bacteria on that, on that carrot, you eat the carrot, you chew it up, all those bacteria will go inside, they will be taken care of by the immune system, right? The immune system will neutralize anything. And sometimes when you eat something and there are too many bacteria or certain evil bacteria, salmonella, etc., then for some time you get food poisoning because they kind of overwhelm the immune system for a while before the immune system takes over and, and wipes them out. So anytime you eat food, all the same immune re responses happen. Everything, every molecule of the food is scrutinized by the immune system. And it is checked. It is, uh, it's passport and visa is checked, essentially. Do you have anything harmful on you? A thorough, a thorough screening is done. And only when it's just in uh, just molecules and, and, and proteins and, and phytochemicals and all those things, only then is it allowed to pass through. If something harmful is there, it is destroyed, annihilated, neutralized, right? So yes, the same checks are done even when we eat food, but there's a whole different system. We don't take a sliver of, carrot and we don't put it into our into our flesh we send it through the right uh in the right in, in the right way right uh, through due process the due process is to put it in your mouth and to swallow it and chew it swallow it have it um, digest and so on so if you do it through the due process through the proper approved procedure then the proper checks and balances are done but if you take a piece of carrot or apple or whatever and you shove it into your skin it will meet the exact same immune response as a sliver of wood would meet and similarly if you eat wood you chew it properly or you take sawdust and you eat it it won't meet the same immune response as it would meet if you were to shove it inside your palm right so the immune system of course has all the same checks and balances uh, i mean the the digestive system has all the same immunological checks and balances. The immune system takes very good care to ensure that nothing harmful gets into the body, either through the stomach lining or through the esophagus or through the lining, uh, alveoli, alveolar lining of the intestines and so on. At every single step, there are checks and balances. Everything is taken care of. So that's how it works. It's a very interesting, complicated process. Even biology is incredibly fascinating. Incredibly fascinating. So yeah, that is 
in brief the answer it's a very intelligent question you asked i uh, it, it's good to see that good job okay balu says what do you think about the future where we will be living in the metaverse well that is still to be seen whether we will be living in the metaverse the metaverse creators would like us all to live in the metaverse so what is this metaverse thing what is it the metaverse is this imaginary world which we can access through virtual reality headsets those bulky things that you wear on your on your eyes and then you go into a different world and then they want you to live there for hours and hours and hours and purchase real estate that is imaginary and uh, essentially live in this augmented reality so right now the the virtual reality headsets that are, that are available via various uh, metaverse creating companies so who are these creators of the metaverse there are like it's a bunch of extremely large extremely powerful and extremely wealthy corporations all in the us who want to change the world they want to change the world they want to change the way we live they want to change our lifestyles they want to change the way we interact with data with information they want to change the way we spend our time all of that that is the metaverse so one of them is meta they have changed their name from facebook to meta in to to be in line with their that push towards in, in in this coming decade to make the metaverse a reality so the metaverse is virtual reality and augmented reality so right now the headsets that you have to wear are very bulky you wear that for more than an hour i think you would get a headache it's that bulky but they are working on the technology to make it lighter and lighter eventually it will be just like wearing glasses right so you wear those glasses and you will see the same world but you will see augmented reality so you will see extra data on that so uh, right now i you just see a few books around behind me over here you can see that you wear those glasses each of in in you you can choose any book let's say this blue one here and i do something and it will show me right away without opening the book who is the author how many pages how many words etc 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 metadata that is one example you go go for a walk wearing those vr glasses and you will see information about every single store what is the store about how long has it been open or what is the average monthly income that they make or or, or uh, and so on so is there anything that is of use to you or of interest to you it will show you all of that so you don't have to go and talk to people anymore you will get all the data right away that is one example the other thing is living in virtual reality you have games like minecraft which is a virtual illusionary world you have games like uh, platforms like roblox and so on you have a uh, role playing games in which you you immerse yourself in that that environment and you become a warrior or something so eventually they would want this to be available at at uh, at your fingertips tips on demand and eventually that would you would not even perhaps need uh, glasses for that you may use contact lenses or eventually even neural implants to have that on demand as long as you pay the monthly subscription eventually you may even get custom designed dreams if you wish or whatever so all of this is the metaverse it's it's something that uh, they it's an artificial uh, virtual world that they want to superimpose on the current world and obviously the, the thing is this uh, they they are uh, the, the, how they want to sell it is by showing us the good uh, effect of that like you can sit at home 
and pretend like you're in office and talk to your colleagues as if you're in the same room, but you're actually in your bedroom or in your office at home or whatever, right? That sort of thing. So you don't you no longer have to go to office. You can be like you're in the office and you will have virtual avatars that represent you with your real face and you can talk to your colleagues, etc., and work together collaboratively and so on. There are obviously problems right now, like the time lag when it comes to internet communication and so on, but they are working on these things and eventually they would want to solve all these problems. So they are saying that it will it, it makes it easier for you to work, we will make it happen. It is It will be much easier for your kids to learn. You Your kids could be at home and still be in school. They could uh, read books on demand. They could uh, learn uh, information sitting uh, at home and so on. But the real monetization, the real commercial value is is in the games and all that. So uh, essentially, they they would like to hook kids into this. They would like to hook kids into the metaverse. Uh, it is easier to form habits as you uh, when you're a kid as opposed to when you are much older, which is why you will see uncles and aunties. No offense, <laughs> you know. People who are 40 plus, etc., who will not be really interested in the metaverse, but people who are teenagers, essentially, or even kids in their in their in their first decade of life, they take up technology so easily, like fish to water. It is the this uh, specific cohort, this specific generation, Generation Z, Generation Z, that they want to hook into this, which is where the commercial value lies, because they will be able to eventually monetize everything commercialize every single aspect of the metaverse. You can even buy virtual real estate in the metaverse now. So that is what the future is. I don't think it's necessarily a very good thing. The real world is the real world. That is the real physical world we live in. We can pretend like we're in a virtual reality and pretend like we are superheroes and all. But at the end of the day, if you if you spend so much time in, in some illusory world while sitting in a dark corner of your bedroom on a blanket, you're going to neglect your health and you're going to have shorter and shorter lives and it's not going to be good for you. You're going to have mental issues, emotional issues, whatnot. So I don't think it's a good thing. They want to enrich themselves at the, at the expense of the rest of the world. I don't think it's a good thing. Technology is a double-edged sword. It has good uh, it has good applications and applications that are not good for everyone. So uh, even the metaverse is the same thing. There are pros and cons. But that's what it is like. The, the, the battle is still to be fought. Right now, the technologies are still uh, in their infancy. But by the time this decade is out, the te technologies will have developed. They will have matured and they will be like, well, very attractive to people. So let us see how it goes. But I think it, it may not necessarily be a very good thing for, for everybody. It will be certainly good for the corporations. But for the rest of the world, not so convinced. Tejas says, how do we see viruses under electron microscopes when viruses are smaller than the wavelength of light? For us to see anything, the light must reflect back from the surface, right? Does that mean electrons behave the same way as light? This is a good question. So what is light? What is all that? So light is uh, photons. Visible light has a certain wavelength. And as Tejas says, viruses are extremely small particles that are much smaller than the wavelength of visible light. So how does this work? So even, see, uh, you must have heard of something called quantum mechanics, wave particle duality. Every particle can behave like a wave. Every wave can essentially have, all, have a particle nature. And uh, so that way, even the electron, which is a, essentially a point particle of sorts, 
it has a wavelength. We know what the mass of the electron is, and uh, and we know what is the very simple wavelength uh, formula for the wavelength of a massive particle. Lambda is equal to h over p, where h is the Planck constant, p is the momentum, which essentially means that lambda is equal to lambda is the wavelength. So lambda is equal to h upon mv. Lambda is the wavelength, h is Planck's constant, m is the mass, v is the velocity, right? And if you fire electrons at a certain speed, what you at a certain velocity, what you find that the wavelength of these electrons can be around a hundred thousand times shorter, shorter than the wavelength of visible light photons, one lakh times shorter. So that way, the resolution of the image that you will get out of this is one hundred thousand times uh, better. And that's why we're able to see viruses under uh, these uh, by using electrons instead of photons for probing the surfaces, for, for probing the, the surface of the virus. That's why we're able to get good images in electron microscopes. So what the electron microscope does is that it fires a beam. I, I see, I don't know if the exact uh, engineering mechanics and, and uh, the, the way electron microscopes are built, but I know it conceptually from the perspective of physics. So what you do is you fire a beam of electrons at the target, right? Those electrons, I suppose, reflect back and you would get a reading. And based on the reading, you can create a, a map of the object that you're uh, trying to probe. And that map essentially is the image that you see with your eyes. So that way you can see things that visible light can never, ever show you because you're using electrons as waves, not as particles, as waves. So yes, electrons do behave the same way as light. The photons are packets of energy, they are particles, and they are also waves. They have frequency and wavelength. Similarly, electrons also have frequency and wavelength. This is the quantum wave-particle duality in action, in real action. We actually use that in technology. Electron microscopes are a great example of that. So it's not light, it's electrons. It's electrons used as light. And that's how we're able to see things that re regular visible light would never ever show us. That's in brief how it works. Karun says, what will be the fastest future transports and ways to travel in space after maybe a half a century or a hundred or a hundred years? Can we achieve the speed higher than 10,000, 100,000 kilometers per hour for traveling. And what are your views on Jeff Bezos' anti-aging startup being immortal is really possible. Okay. So uh, what is the speed of light? 300,000 kilometers per second. Yes. 300,000 kilometers per second. You're talking about 100,000 kilometers per hour. So that is much slower than that. Is it possible? Yes, it is possible. And uh, this could, could, could happen soon, I suppose. There is this project called Breakthrough Starshot, which is going to use light sail technology. To, and the objective is to have a large number of small spacecraft, micro spacecraft, maybe, you know, just a small little thing, which will have a light sail and it will have a very small chip that will, with, with the optical sensors, etc. You're going to use pulsed laser, laser light. You're going to shine this laser light on the light sails. And these micro spacecraft, there may be thousands of these, will be accelerated using radiation pressure of the lasers to a speed that may be maybe a third 
of that of light, maybe one third light speed. And using this incredible speed that we'll be able to achieve, we will be able to send these, this entire massive armada fleet of spacecraft, micro spacecraft, to our nearest neighboring star system, Alpha Centauri, Proxima Centauri. And we could have these spacecraft visit one of the exoplanets that's known to be in orbit around the system. And so this process will take 20 to 30 years, maybe 40 years. Within 30 to 40 years, these spacecraft traveling at nearly a third of the speed of light will be able to reach our neighboring star in just 30 or so years. And then they will take images, data, etc., photographs, etc., and, and beam it back to Earth, which will take about four years, four, four and a half years. So within half a century, we will have actual images of an exoplanet in our neighboring star system, which is about four and a half, four, roughly four and a half light years away from here. So this will happen. This is possible. The technology almost exists today. The phased laser array, etc., needs to be worked on. But once that technology is available, we will be actually able to do that. So this could happen within a decade. Within within a decade, we will have spacecraft, tiny spacecraft, that can be accelerated to nearly a third of the speed of light, or something like that, roughly. Yeah, Rel relativistic velocities. So this is a technology demonstration on a small scale. When you are building a fighter plane, you first develop a small model, which is an exact replica of what the large thing will look like. You test it in a wind tunnel and you check out how it works and so on. So that is a technology demonstration. Using that, you can improve upon it, upon the design. So similarly, this is going to be a technology demonstration on a small scale of tiny spacecraft, you know, tiny little spacecraft, micro spacecraft. But the same principle will work just as well on large spacecraft with massive light sails, kilo, kilometers, square kilometers in size. But you would need much more powerful uh, lasers to, to accelerate such large spacecraft to relativistic velocities. So in the next 100 years, definitely possible. Yeah, traveling at relativistic velocities is definitely possible if uh, we're able to develop the technologies needed for that. Essentially powerful enough lasers very much possible. So that is your answer. And what about Jeff Bezos' anti-aging startup? Is being immortal really possible? Uh, in being immortal, as far as I understand, is not possible. You can certainly extend extend the lifespan of the of, of human beings. Right now, the uh, in developed countries, the average life expectancy is around 80, 80 82, 83. In Japan, it's, I think it's 83, 84. Uh, it's between 70 to 85 years, something like that. In developed countries, in other countries with uh, lower living standards, you have lower life expectancy and so on and so forth, right? So it is certainly possible to extend the lifespan of a human being using various uh, processes. Uh, I've spoken about this before. Uh, it seems to be that aging, the process of aging is caused by the shortening, shortening of telomeres at the ends of human chromosomes. A chromosome is essentially something that carries part of your DNA, part of your genome. At the ends of your chromosomes, inside your body, inside your cells, you have something called telomeres. Now, as a person grows older in years, this the length of the telomeres at the ends of the chromosomes, it gets shorter. And this seems to be in, uh, intrinsically connected to the process of aging. So it is theorized that if you can stop the shortening of the telomeres, then the process of aging can be 
possibly uh, retarded, slowed down, possibly even stopped, possibly we don't know. So there are some startups working on that. And I, if I'm not mistaken, maybe Jeff Bezos and his startup is also working on this particular uh, theory that if you can stop the shortening of the telomeres, then you can possibly stop aging, possibly stop aging. I don't think it would give a person infinite lifespan. I don't think so. Maybe you could add 10, 20, possibly even 50 years to the human lifespan if you can get this done well, if you can make this work. It may also lead to improvements in brain health, possibly things like dementia and Alzheimer's disease, etc. could possibly be be treated or, or, or even prevented with this. We don't know yet. So this research is still, you could call it in the initial phases, initial stages, possibly in its infancy. So uh, I think it is certainly going to be possible to extend human lives by maybe 10, 20, 30, possibly even 50 years. Being immortal, I think it's impossible. Immortal means infinite. And infinity is unphysical. What is an infinity? It's division by zero. That's unphysical. So I don't think it would be possible ever to have an infinite lifespan. Yeah. But uh, yeah, an extension of human lives is certainly possible in terms of years. So yeah, it's, it's something they're working on. Okay, Karan says, is it possible to make antimatter weapons? Antimatter weapons. So that's interesting. So what is antimatter? I think we deal with a lot of antimatter these days on this show what's antimatter antimatter particles are the uh, are are the, the they are the same they have the same mass as their regular matter counterparts but they have opposite uh, charges uh, like for instance the positron which is the antimatter equivalent of the electron has the same mass as the electron but electrons have negative charge positrons have positive charge antiprotons are again the same thing the same mass as regular protons but opposite electric charges and so on so that's one way of looking at antimatter right so antimatter has been produced in uh, various linear colliders, atom smashers like the LHC, etc. Yes, it is certainly possible to create antimatter. And the thing about antimatter and matter is that if antimatter comes into contact with the regular matter, it immediately annihilates. So let's say one anti-hydrogen atom comes into contact with a regular hydrogen atom, there is going to be an immediate annihilation and all that is released is pure energy. Pure energy. Uh, so that's what it is. So let's say you have one gram of matter and one gram of antimatter and you are able to get the two of to these two uh, grams of matter antimatter to annihilate completely. It's going to give off about 10 raised to 14 joules of energy and its equivalent is about 40 to 45 kilotons equivalent of TNT. What does this mean? 40 to 45 kilotons equivalent of TNT. Comparison, the Hiroshima nuclear disaster, the Hiroshima nuclear weapon gave off a yield of 15 kilotons equivalent of TNT. 15. The Nagasaki uh, event, the Nagasaki uh, war crime, it gave off uh, a yield of about 21 or 22 kilotons of TNT. Hiroshima, 15 kilotons. Nagasaki, 22 kilotons. One gram of matter, one gram of antimatter, annihilate. You get about 40 to 45 kilotons of TNT. 
just one gram plus one gram. So two grams. So for this, you just need one gram of antimatter to react with one gram of regular matter. Regular matter is abundant. We don't need to seek it. We don't need, it costs nothing. But antimatter is the real deal. So you have one gram of antimatter. You can produce the, the enough energy, the, the energy equivalent of, let's say, around three Hiroshima nuclear weapons, right? So that is the amount of energy it can give off. So yes, if you have antimatter at your disposal, you can make incredibly powerful and energetic antimatter weapons. You can do that. The question is, do we uh, do we have a means of, of uh, producing antimatter? Like I said, uh, linear colliders and atom smashers like the LHC, the Large Hadron Collider, etc., they produce antimatter on a regular basis. Antiparticle, antiparticles. Yeah. Uh, so that's what happens in these atom smashers and linear colliders. But the amount of antimatter that we are able to produce is negligible, very, very less. I think uh, uh, anti-hydrogen has been produced and uh, it's very difficult to store antimatter. Antimatter, uh, You need to keep it in almost perfect vacuum because if, if you keep antimatter in air, in, in the atmosphere, it will react with the uh, molecules of air. It will annihilate immediately. It needs to be in complete perfect vacuum. And it should. We, we also need to ensure it doesn't touch the walls of the container which has this vacuum. So you need magnetic confinement and all that. And it's it's very difficult to produce any significant amount of antimatter. So uh, it's extremely expensive to do that. So the Manhattan Project in the 1930s and 40s, which uh, produced the first nuclear reactor and the first nuclear weapon, its budget, it cost about $30 billion in today's money, approximately $30 billion in today's money. Now, a millionth of a gram of antimatter, a millionth, one divided by one million, that much of a gram of antimatter would cost about $60 billion today. Six with nine zeros at the end of it. A thousandth of a gram of antimatter would cost about $60 trillion. Six with 12 zeros after it. And a single gram, one gram, of antimatter would cost about 60 quadrillion dollars six with 15 zeros after it so as you can see nobody has this sort of money the amount of money that you need to that you need in order to produce just one gram of antimatter and that's why even though it is certainly possible it's it's impractical today today in the future in the future we may have the technology to produce a uh, more antimatter at at a, a, at a smaller cost. Maybe it could cost the same as a nuclear weapon. In that case, it would be as financially viable as, as building nuclear weapons, and it would uh, offer significant advantages over nuclear uh, weapons and so on. But as of today, it's 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 prohibitively expensive to to produce any reasonable amount of antimatter. Just one gram will cost quadrillions of dollars, right? So that's why it's not possible today. That's why it's impractical to do it today. Possibly, uh, pos is it possible? Certainly, it is possible. It is certainly possible. But that won't happen in the near future, anytime in the near future. Maybe in the next 50 years, maybe in the next 100 years, possibly, we may have it. In that case, we could even use antimatter as uh, as uh, rocket fuel. Yeah? If, if the, we can produce sufficient amounts of that, that would be an extremely useful 
rocket fuel, extremely efficient and effective rocket fuel. So yes, theoretically possible, physically possible, but practically, uh, but but from the perspective of, of uh, practicality, it's extremely impractical today. In the future, it may happen. Aditi says, how does evolution take place? What causes our biology to evolve, our journey to becoming homo sapiens? How does it take place at the atomic level? Please give your views on the ancient girl who was an interbred of Neanderthals and Denisovans. Is interbreeding possible today and do there still exist these species in pure form anywhere, somewhere in the world? Right. So what is evolution? Evolution is a very slow process. It's a very, very slow process. It doesn't happen over, over a period of weeks or hours or months or years. It happens over hundreds of thousands of years. So Homo sapiens, our species, has been around for about 300,000 years. We have found fossils in, in parts of Africa, I think in northern Africa, of Homo sapiens that date back to almost 300,000 years before today, 3 lakh years. Same species as us, anatomically modern human beings. They were not different from us, from the anatomical perspective or the species perspective. They were the, they were the same species. So our species is at least 300,000 years old. And as you can see, so that's the kind of time scale it takes for evolution to happen. Before that, you would, you would have a, a, a more archaic ancestral form of Homo sapiens that we don't quite uh, know what it was like, but it would be like more primitive. Not more primitive, but different different from the evolutionary perspective. You go back a million years, you have uh, various more archaic human species. You go back about three or so million years, you have the ancestors of humans and chimpanzees. You go back six million years, you have the ancestors of humans, chimpanzees and gorillas as well. So evolution takes place on very long time scales, very long time scales, right? How does it happen? It happens through natural selection natural selection. So um, it, it's essentially a slow, very slow response to the environment. Uh, when an, a child is made, it, it is the combination of genes from both parents, right? It's a combination of genes from both parents. And typically what happens is that uh, the uh, mechanism somehow, it's not quite well understood how it happens, but it tends to take the most advantageous traits from both parents. Sometimes you get bad traits as well. I mean, if somebody has some genetic defect or some, some inherited illness, that also gets passed on, right? Uh, there are lots of things like hemophilia and uh, whatever else, right? Asthma, leukoderma, whatever. So certain recessive or, or, or disadvantageous traits are passed on. But typically over long periods of time, what happens is that the people who, in whom... Uh, disadvantageous traits are passed on, they don't survive. These are disadvantageous to your survival. So over hundreds of thousands of years, the genes that are disadvantageous to your long-term survival get weeded out in the evolutionary process. Right? And the more advantageous genes are passed on because the people who, who typically are healthier have more children and those, those traits are passed on. So it's a very long process very slow process and it does not happen at the atomic level it ha it happens at the genomic level at the level of your dna 
in your chromosomes so it is there that this happens and the the actual physical process is the uh, process of combination of genes from both parents that's how it happens so that is in it's it's uh, it's very hard to give a clear idea uh without going deep deep into uh, molecular biology but that is overall how it happens very long time scales very slow process thousands of generations it happens over thousands of generations that certain genes are weeded out because they are disadvantageous to the survival long term survival of the species and what happens is that typically over long periods of time you adapt the species adapt adapts in such a way that it it responds best to the environment so let's say you are living in a very long ice age that has been going on for 200000 years slowly the species you will see it will develop more hair more fur because that gives us gives it an advantage oh, and it it helps it survive more in cold climate so that's the sort of response you see over long periods of time to the climatic and environmental conditions uh, we know that our very deep ancestors very ancient ancestors were fish who lived in the oceans eventually for whatever reason they emerged out on land and slowly over millions of years they developed what's called lungs they were they developed the ability to breathe oxygen and survive entirely on land this happened over several millions of years these are very slow uh, iterative responses to the environmental uh, changes and lifestyle changes so that's how it happens it's a very slow process now what about this girl who was uh, like you say interbred neanderthal and denisovans so when it comes to the neanderthals and the denisovans these are uh, subspecies of of uh, uh, so you have homo sapiens homo neanderthalis homo denisovan or whatever it is uh, these are subspecies of human beings just like let me give you a very crude approximation we have wolves and we have the regular dogs canis lupus and canis lupus domestic whatever the whatever the latin uh, name is so the domestic dog that we have is a subspecies of the wolf of the wild wolf they are essentially the same uh, the same animal the same species but the the domesticated house dog or the the dog that lives with humans is a subspecies of, of the wolf they can still interbreed and produce a very viable offspring so what would you call them dogs wolves doesn't matter it's it's just a canine species that's a very crude and rough example you know for analogy purposes now when it comes to humans homo sapiens or neanderthals denisovans we are we know that the neanderthals went extinct about 20 30000 years before today denisovans also went extinct for whatever reason and yet we know that we, there was inter- interbreeding between homo sapiens and neanderthals and homo sapiens and denisovans and also now we know between neanderthals and denisovans themselves so the species these three different kinds of humans were were genetically close enough that they could breed with each other and produce viable offspring we know that most non african human beings have about 4 5% neanderthal ancestry we know that certain populations in asia in oceania etc human populations have maybe 2 3 4% of denisovan ancestry and so on and there is some uh, back reaction into africa as well of of neanderthal ancestry it's it's a very complex uh, genetic landscape uh so 
this interbreeding was possible because these species or subspecies, subspecies were genetically close enough which means that last their last common ancestor was quite recent which means that they had not completely diverged to the extent that they could not interbreed and produce offspring humans and gorillas or humans and chimpanzees cannot produce offspring even if they were to try <laughs> and similarly for gorillas and chimpanzees etc because it's been so long that the genetics have diverged significantly it's no longer possible to produce offspring but among these three species uh, subspecies humans uh, sapiens neanderthals and denisovans it was possible and that's why you see that we i mean i believe in india we don't seem to have much neanderthal ancestry for whatever reason that's a whole different story the aryan invasion migration tourism picnic uh myth but yeah uh, now the, yeah so so interbreeding is possible well we no longer have neanderthals we no longer have denisovans we only have homo sapiens now uh, i don't know how it happened but we are the only ones left and we are all over so how do we interbreed it's it's not possible because we don't have any of them to interbreed with uh and so yeah that that's your answer these species don't exist and there is no such thing as a pure species a pure species it doesn't make any sense there is no such thing as a pure species uh there is no such thing as a pure race you know people talk about races of human beings that's a it's an extraordinarily unscientific idea so uh, yeah those species or subspecies no longer exist and there is no such thing as pure species and so on and so forth all right so that's the answer akash says i read that black holes have three properties mass charge and spin but black holes are just a tear in the space time fabric so what does it really mean that they spin and have a charge also connected to this is what is a schwarzschild black hole and how do we find out the mass of black holes when we can barely see them all right so black holes are not quite tears in the fab fabric of space time they're not tears or holes in space time they a black hole is essentially a mass a pure mass that's what it is uh so let me first go to what is the schwarzschild radius and all that so the the uh what is a schwarzschild black hole uh, it is an uncharged non rotating black hole that is what a schwarzschild black hole is so the schwarzschild solution to the einstein field, field equations is something that is in that is uncharged and non rotating in in a in a universe without a cosmological constant that's the schwarzschild metric a solution to the einstein field equations then you have other kinds of black holes like the reissner nordstrom black hole which is a charged black hole but it is not rotating then you have kerr black holes which are uncharged black holes that are rotating that have angular momentum and then you have kerr newman black holes that are charged as well as rotating these are different solutions to the einstein einstein field equations to the einstein maxwell equations and so on which give us these different kinds of black holes so black holes can come in these different flavors uncharged non rotating which are schwarzschild black holes charged but non rotating reissner nordstrom uncharged rotating which is kerr and charged as well as rotating kernewan four different major flavors or types of black holes right so what is a black hole a black hole is a region in space time that conceals a point from the general relativity relativity perspective it's a region in space time that conceals a point that has infinite density 
mass density and infinite curvature. And this is hidden behind what's called an event horizon. So it's not a tear in the fabric of space-time, but it is something unphysical. Uh, an infinity is unphysical. What is an infinity? You divide a number by zero, that's when you get infinity. That is unphysical. That cannot happen. So that tells us that there is a flow, a defect in the physics, in the equations of general relativity. Uh, we need a better theory of relativity. We need a theory of relativity that brings, that that uh, that is a marriage between geometrodynamics of Einstein and quantum theory, quantum field theory, quantum mechanics. You combine the two, you will have a proper theory of quantum gravity in which I believe in these singularities will no longer occur. So from what we know today, a black hole is a regional space-time. Yeah, it is, it is an event horizon which concedes, which hides this monstrous singularity. It's not a tear in the fabric of space-time, right? So that is what it is. So we also have something called an extremal black hole. So an extremal black hole is, is an object that has the minimal possible mass compatible with a given amount of charge and given amount of angular momentum. So that's an extremal black hole. And you have near extremal black holes, etc. It is speculated or hypothesized that the theorized that the entropy of an extremal black hole could be equal to zero and so on. Now, the other question is, uh, what? how do we find the mass of black holes when we can barely see them? Very simple, Newtonian mechanics, Newtonian dynamics, uh, celestial dynamics. You see the effect the black hole has on other objects. If you see a star, let's say you're talking about the star, the black hole, the supermassive black hole at the center of our own galaxy, the Milky Way. We know where it is. We don't see it. It's dark. But what do we see? We see this incredible dance that the other stars in this region are doing around this invisible object. We see the speeds, the velocities of the stars. Yeah, These are elliptical orbits. We can uh, de deduce the size, the masses of the stars through various means, astronomical techniques. So we know there's a bunch of stars at the very heart of our galaxy that are doing this extraordinary dance around an unseen object. And based on the size, distance, speed, and uh, time of the of the orbits and the masses of the of the stars, we can very accurately deduce the mass of this unseen object that is making them all dance around. So that's how that's one way of deducing. The mass of a black hole and there are other ways you can use gravitational lensing a black hole is invisible yeah it's dark invisible actually but it is a very massive object which causes light to warp around it which causes space-time to warp around it the warping of space-time and that's why light bends and you can measure the bending of the light and calculate the amount of mass of black hole that black hole would have so there are multiple ways of doing it and th that's how typically it is done Okay, Dhruva Kumar says, is the placebo effect real? How can anyone treat their deceased body without medicine? What's your take on this? Um, the placebo effect is something that, uh, that you see in medicine. So let's say you're doing a trial of a new drug. You have uh, come up with a new drug that to, to, to treat some illness. Yeah? And you want to do a trial. So how do you do a proper trial? You take two groups of volunteers. 
let's say a hundred group a group of hundred here and a hundred a group of hundred there you call one group group a and you call one group group b total 200 people divided into two groups a and b to group a you give the new drug that you've developed in the let's say in the in the form of a pill uh, a white pill to so that is what you give to the 100 people in group a this white pill which is the new drug that you've developed to treat whatever whatever illness in group b so both these groups of people have that illness okay which is which this drug is supposed to treat group a takes the drug group b you give the same kind of white pill but it is an inactive substance it doesn't contain the drug it doesn't contain the medicine it is nothing it's an inactive it's it's uh, gelatin or, or or cellulose or whatever something that will not react with the body it will do nothing but you don't tell these two groups what they have received so both will believe that they have taken the drug and then over time over the certain over the very specific period of time you see the kind of effect this these these two groups exhibit and that that's how you can see whether a drug is efficacious or not so that so the tablet which contains the drug is the actual drug and the tablet which does nothing is called a placebo and very often it is seen that when you give a person a placebo and tell them it's a drug that is going to treat you and cure you of whatever it actually happens it actually works it so the placebo effect is real let's say somebody is suffering from a headache you tell them this this take this pill you'll be fine in 30 minutes often even though the the pill contains nothing the headache kind of resolves within 30 minutes or so sometimes a person may be feeling lethargic can you say that take this caffeine pill and swallow it within 20 minutes you'll feel much more active and vigorous and it's placebo very often you see that the the person actually feels much better after taking a placebo so this is called the placebo effect it cannot actually treat diseases it cannot cure you of cancer it cannot cure heart disease but it can have certain effects certain very beneficial effects sometimes even when a person knows that they are taking a placebo you may see this kind of effect so uh that's what the placebo effect is it is like so it's because in certain cases the mind the brain or whatever you want to call it it has the ability to produce significant beneficial or uh, biochemical changes in the body which may uh, end up uh, giving you a better outcome to whatever problem you are suffering right for instance uh, the brain is capable of releasing endorphins which are natural painkillers endorphins you give a person a placebo say it's a painkiller it may induce the brain into releasing endorphins that have the same effect as a painkiller and so on so that is what the placebo effect is it is not very well understood uh, it is known to work and uh, yeah it's one of the great mysteries of the human brain the human psyche the subconscious and so on and so forth ayush says almost all of the ed tech views show space time curving below a planet or a star just like a trampoline but there is no top or bottom in space then does it mean that space time curves in all directions around a planet or star or a star and if so then how can a black hole have infinite curvature of space time in all directions good question so yes you you see any any uh, popular science uh, tv show or documentary etc they will show you a trampoline like surface in which you play planet let me let's let's see it it's all over um 
let me share my screen and let's pull out one of these images. Images. Take a look at this. Take a look at what they do to us. See, this is your typical, uh, this is the way they show it typically. It's a two-dimensional surface with length and breadth, which with this grid structure on it, this grid uh, etched on it, you place these planets or, or massive objects and, and you see how space-time curves. So this is how they show the curvature of space-time. And the question which Ayush is asking is, is true, is a good question. Everything is, it's always shown this way. Does it mean that uh, there is top and bottom in space? Well, it is not true. This is a misleading representation of the curvature of space-time. Let me show you a true more accurate representation of the curvature of space-time. Take a look at this. This is how space-time actually curves. Let me remove this from here. Take a look. This is what space-time curvature should be shown as actually. So it curves in three dimensions. The presence of mass makes the fabric of space-time, the four-dimensional fabric of space-time, to curve in this manner. What we are seeing is the curvature of the three spatial dimensions, length, breadth, and height. We cannot see the curvature of time, obviously, because we don't have the ability to see in four dimensions. But this is what the real curvature of, of space looks like when it is affected by mass. So it is not this sort of curvature, two-dimensional curvature. It's a three-dimensional curvature of space-time. So remember this meme. This meme, you should remember that the two-dimensional view is misleading. It is incorrect. The three-dimensional view is what the curvature of space is really like. All right. So that's what it is. That's what the curvature of space-time really is like. That's how you should visualize it in your mind's eye. Um, what's the other question? Infinite curvature? Yeah, infinite curvature is unphysical. It doesn't make sense. So from the perspective of general relativity, from the equations, from the solutions of the equations, it, it's telling us that at the heart, at the very center of a black hole, behind the event, event horizon, unseen from the mortal eye, at the very center of this black hole, of any black hole, there is a point of infinite space-time curvature and infinite density. Infinity. But infinities are unphysical. How do you mathematically create an infinity? You take a number and divide by zero. You take one divided by zero, it's infinity. You take a million divided by zero, it's infinity. You take any number divided by zero, it's infinity. That is unphysical. It simply cannot happen in the real world. So what it means is that general relativity is flawed. It is incorrect. It is very accurate. It has passed all tests that we have able we have been able to throw at it. But at the microscope, at the ultra microscopic level, it breaks down. The equations give us unphysical answers, singularities, infinities, which means that the theory works great at macroscopic scales, at large scales, but it breaks down at the ultra microscopic quantum scale, which means that we need a better version of this theory. We need a quantum theory of gravity, quantum gravity. And we still don't have it. So, so that's what it is. Karthik says, are the conscious mind and the subconscious mind real? Can you please differentiate between them? Um, 
yeah, there does seem to be a conscious level of existence and a subconscious level of existence. Conscious mind, subconscious mind. Um, the conscious mind is what we use in doing things consciously, deliberately. When we are thinking about something, when we are doing decision making, when we decide what to do, when we are learning, when we are practicing some skill, we are doing it consciously. Right? Let's say I'm playing golf. I'm practicing how to play golf. So in golf, there is a certain swing that you have to do, right? It has to go in a certain arc. The first time you go and play golf, you're not going to be able, able to hit the golf ball with your, with, your, with your club. You're going to miss. You do it hundreds of times, you're going to start hitting the ball. So you're practicing deliberately, consciously. You do it tens of thousands of times, times then you, your swing is going to get better and better and you're going to be able to hit the ball further and further away. And you're going to be able to ensure that it ends up where you want it to end up. That takes hundreds of hours of practice, tens of thousands of swings that you practice. You're practicing deliberately, consciously. But the subconscious mind is internalizing this and it becomes part of your muscle memory. After a long period of practice like this, many months, years, you can wake up in the middle of the night and do a perfect swing without even thinking about it. So that's where this, the subconscious mind has taken over. So you practice consciously, but you execute using the subconscious mind. That is the key to sporting excellence. Now, people who get nervous, let's say you are a great golfer. Hmm? You're a great golfer. You, you, you execute flawlessly in practice. But when you go for the comp competition, you're nervous. You're nervous because you see so many great golfers around you. You may be better than them. But if you're nervous and you, you're going to go do your swing, you're going to again do it consciously. The key is to turn off the conscious mind and let the subconscious take over. Because the subconscious is going to execute far better than the conscious mind. So there is a whole mental programming that you have to master as, a sport, as an elite sports person. Whether it is golfing, whether it is archery, whether it is any other sport. You have to master the mind. You have to allow the conscious, the subconscious mind to take over while performing in competition. You practice consciously. You perform. You execute by allowing the subconscious mind to take over. These are two different aspects of mind. So uh, the subconscious mind is stubborn. It internalizes, it internalizes things and refuses to give them up. That's why you need to consciously ensure that your subconscious mind uh, internalizes internalizes the right things. You repeat certain negative things to yourself over and over again, it's going to have a real effect on you. There is something called negative self-talk and positive self-talk. If a person is a very positive person by nature and they keep repeating to themselves mentally, I'm great, I'm, I'm this, I'm that, whatever it is, positive self-talk, that person's self-confidence over time will grow better and better. But a person who constantly criticizes himself or herself internally all the time. That internal self-talk. You keep doing it for months, you're going to become a very diffident, low-confidence person who will not perform well in life. So this is how you train the subconscious mind. Through, through your self-talk, through what you choose to tell yourself over and over again, and the way you practice and so on. So that is kind of the difference between the conscious mind and the subconscious mind. What I'm doing right now, I'm speaking to you all. I'm doing it consciously. My conscious mind is doing it. But the habits, the behavior, the outlook, the attitude, or whatever else is there is because of the habits 
that have been ingrained in me by my own choice over over years. Yeah. So some people you feel they are very positive, very cheerful, very joyous. It's because of their subconscious. I mean, you can you can act for some time, you can pretend, but you can't pretend forever. You cannot pretend to be something else that you are not forever. Eventually, your true nature comes out. Similarly, some people, you can sense that they are very low confidence. They are very, well, kind of negative. They have a negative uh, um, aura or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, whatever word you want to use. So that's because of the subconscious shining through at times and so on. So yeah, there are no very, there are no clear scientific definitions of subconscious, conscious, etc. But it does exist. Psychiatrists will know this. Psychologists will know this and so on. So that roughly, roughly is the difference between the conscious and the subconscious, the psyche and the actual uh, conscious mind. Okay, Shweta says, uh, could you critique and compare gravity? Newton's theory versus the fabric of space and time, which is Einstein's theory. Right, good question. What is the difference between Newtonian gravity and Einsteinian gravity, which is general relativity? That is a very good question, and I'm glad somebody asked. So, what is all this stuff? Um, so, Newtonian gravity. All right, so let's talk about gravity. Gravity, the understanding of what gravity is, was the first big unification of the forces. What do I mean by that? We all knew, our ancestors knew for thousands of years. You take an apple, you drop it, it's going to go right to the, to the, to the, to the ground. It's going to go towards the ground. It's going to fall. All objects, all massive objects fall. They fall downwards. We knew this. You throw a stone in a certain direction, it's going to take a parabolic trajectory, trajectory, a ballistic trajectory, it's going to fall, and so on. We knew this. But the big leap of imagination was when some of our ancestors realized that the force that thing, makes things fall on the earth is the same force that governs the motions of the stars and the planets in the sky. That leap of imagination, that realization was the first big unification of forces. The forces that govern us on this little planet are the same as the forces that govern the massive universe, the stars, the galaxies, the moon, the planets, the sun, and the earth. That was the first big unification. So we, our ancients called it Gurutvakarshan in Sanskrit. Eventually these ideas made their way to the West. Calculus made its way to the West. Newton got hold of it. And he came up with the Principia Mathematica in Latin, the, the, which uh, also had the theory of gravitation. So Newtonian gravity is what Newton came up with. We, we call it Newton, Newtonian gravity. And according to this perspective on gravity, Gravity is a constant instantaneous force. Constant force, instantaneous force. Action at a distance. And it is represented by the equation F is equal to G times M1, M2 upon R squared. The, the potential is a 1 upon R potential. The force is G, M1, M2 upon R squared. F is the force. G is the, Newton in, the Newton's constant. M1 and M2 are the masses of the two objects, the two massive bodies. And R is the radius the distance between the centers of the two masses. That is the Newtonian gravity, in very brief. It's an instantaneous force, it's a, it's a constant force, it's an attractive force, yeah, a pulling force. It's action at a distance. That is Newtonian gravity. Einstein's gravity 
way went way beyond that einstein dis- demonstrated he he theorized that gravity this what we perceive as the force of gravity is actually the curvature of not only space but time the four dimensional f- structure fabric of space time so when you have a mass in space or space time the presence of the mass causes the fabric of space time to curve to bend to distort mass curves space time and the curvature of space time tells mass how to move so it's it it works both ways so this is the geometric theory of gravity geometrodynamics which is general relativity which einstein came up with in 1915 and it has been tested thousands of times the objective of all these tests is to prove this theory wrong in different ways and thus far all the tests have failed this theory works it's the best theory that we have at large distances in the macroscopic uh, sphere of the world domain of the world that's the main difference between uh, general relativity general relativity and newtonian gravity another big difference is that in newton's perspective gravity is an instantaneous force action at a distance infinite range in the einsteinian perspective the better perspective there is a speed limit it's not instantaneous the curvature of space time doesn't happen instantaneously it has a speed limit c the speed of light and let me illustrate this let me illustrate this by going to my where is the image once again let let's do a thought experiment my dear friends i always talk about thought experiments let's do a thought experiment this here is our beloved home system the solar system at the center you have the sun then you have the different planets mercury venus earth mars the asteroid belt and then jupiter saturn uranus neptune and how dare they not throw pluto anyway this is the solar system right now let's do a thought experiment let's say by magic i make the sun disappear the sun at the center of the solar system i make it vanish all of a sudden by magic then what happens according to new according to newton's perspective gravity is what keeps the, the solar system together because of the gra- the enormous gravity and the mass of the sun if the sun were to suddenly disappear all the planets would immediately fly off in different directions because this great mass that is holding them together is gone so if you were to make the sun disappear according to newton all these planets would immediately fly off into outer space in different directions now according to the einstein version of gravity the better version of gravity there is a speed limit if the sun were to disappear we know that it takes light 8 minutes roughly to travel from the sun to the earth so even if the sun were to disappear on earth we would know not know about this for 8 minutes for 8 minutes we would still imagine we would still believe the sun is still there because we are still getting the light that uh, was emitted 8 8 minutes ago it's only after 8 minutes that we on earth would realize that the sun has disappeared and it's only after 8 minutes that the earth would start flying off in a different direction it would take longer for that to happen to to mars much longer for jupiter saturn uranus neptune pluto and so on so it is the inner planets that would start flying off first and slowly slowly one by one the outer planets planets will go off in different directions once the gravitational effect of the sun 
disappears at the speed of light so this is the major difference may very very significant difference between newtonian gravity and einstein's general theory of relativity and the general theory of relativity is the better superior version we know that so that in brief is the major differences Saurav says, how legitimate is psychiatry as a profession? I read somewhere that one in seven people in India are suffering from an undiagnosed mental illness. That said, is it in any way factual or a survey meant for the big farmers' profits? Also considering the opioid crisis which keeps coming in the news. Okay, all right. Mm. Oh, psychiatry, well, um, psychiatry is kind of hand-waving and voodoo. See, let's say you are an orthopedic uh, surgeon doctor how do you know something is wrong you take a look at let's say a person comes with a broken arm and you want to fix it you're going to take an x-ray you're going to see exactly what the affected part of the body looks like right let's say somebody has a kidney problems you're going to scan the kidney you're going to go do a whole bunch of tests and you're going to figure out exactly what is wrong with that kidney Let's say you are an eye specialist. You're going to look at the eye and see what's wrong with the eye and so on and so forth. You, you're a gastrointestinal doctor, surgeon, whatever. You're going to do tests and ima do imaging of the object, of the of the stomach, of the intestines, etc. And then diagnose what's wrong with the, with the person. When it comes to psychiatrists, they are dry, diagnosing brain problems, mind problems. How do they do it? Do they ever take a look at the brain? No. Psychiatrists are the only uh, members of the medical profession that never take a look at the organ that is affected, which is the brain. So how do they make their diagnosis? They talk to the patient. They tell the patient to lie down on a couch, on a sofa or whatever it is. The patient lies down. The psychiatrist typically sits on a, on a different chair next to the person and then asks questions, interviews the person, tells the person to tell stories about their life or whatever it is. And, and this happens over multiple sessions or over a long period of time. Eventually, the psychiatrist makes certain assessments, tries to, to tease out certain symptoms or clusters, clusters of symptoms. And based on this very rough <laughs> procedure, they uh, diagnose what is wrong with the person and, and pre prescribe various medications. It is hand-waving and voodoo. That's what it is. That's what psychiatry is. What should actually happen is at least do imaging of the brain. Very often what happens is that people have undiagnosed brain injuries. It happens very often. You know, brain injury, when we typically think of a brain injury, we, we see in our mind's eye a person falling down a flight of stairs and hitting their head on the floor. Or a person falling from a tree and hitting their head on the, on the ground. Or a person playing American football and being hit in the head repeatedly time after time after time or a, or a person playing cricket and being hit by a cricket ball you have a concussion so this is how we imagine a brain injury to happen and often that's how it happens a kid at the age of three fell down was unconscious for five minutes then he grew up he was fine and everything went back to normal but you that may have resulted in a brain injury the person seems to be normal the kid grows up but over time they they show they exhibit symptoms of mental illness it could be because of a brain injury but because the kid just did not appear to be ill, it was forgotten. These things happen very happen very often. In the case of the opioid crisis, like you mentioned, drug abuse, etc. Drug abuse damages the brain. 
long term drug abuse whatever drug you're using hard drugs whatever it is it ends up damaging people's brains but that is never seen it's never visible to anyone the person looks just not just fine so uh i would say that psychiatrists should add certain tools to their arsenal they should do uh, brain imaging there is something called spect imaging s p e c t single photon emission computerized tomography spect imaging imaging should be done which essentially gives you a good scan of how the brain is what are the regions of the brain that are active of that are showing more activity which are the ones that are showing less activity is there any damage in the brain and all so on you can see that so that would actually give you an idea of whether a person actually has any brain injury or whether there are regions of, of the brain that are hyperactive there is something called ocd obsessive compulsive disorder in which the the brain refuses to to uh, to calm down you have a parts of the brain in the front the frontal lobes that are, that are hyperactive typically in a healthy brain the back of the brain needs to be needs to show more activity the front another part of the brain should be showing low activity in ocd you have the frontal lobes etc that show very high activity and so on so if you do the sort of imaging spect imaging or whatever else then you can get a good idea of what's actually happening because sometimes you have people which show the same symptoms but they have very different brain scans so this so what needs to happen is that psychiatry needs to needs to actually use some imaging technique techniques psychiatrists need to be trained in all of these things they should be trained into how about how to read brain scans what brain scans to 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 prescribe and then based on this more solid observational data scientific data on the basis of that uh, they should make their diagnosis and they should prescribe medicines right now it's all voodoo and hand hand waving they 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 sometimes prescribe uh, behavior therapy that can be very cruel someone's suffering from a brain injury which is exhibiting itself in a certain range of symptoms but you are prescribing behavioral therapy to correct the behavior the behavior is an outcome of the injury you have to treat the injury not the symptom so that's how it is right now i would say psychiatry is just hand waving in voodoo i i do not even consider it to be science that is my assessment of psychiatry it is not science it is hand waving and voodoo that's all it is an amazing indian citizen says why has india lost the speed in the global supercomputer race india has never really invested in supercomputing i think if you look at the i don't know what the rate rankings are right now if you look at the top 100 supercomputers in the world i think india would have two or three of those in the 90s so india has never really tried to participate as a serious player in this big race uh, most of the top 10 top 20 top 30 supercomputers were american chinese or maybe japanese maybe a couple of british and french supercomputers maybe something from israel perhaps but the top 3 major players are the us china and japan india is not even trying to participate and you know it's not that hard to to build a supercomputer you can build a supercomputer on the cheap if you know how to do it you have to cannibalize existing uh, existing computers so what is a supercomputer so a supercomputer is a very powerful machine computer with a, with extremely high processing power parallel processing very high flops teraflops uh, what's a flop floating operations per second teraflops is uh, it in the 10 raised to what um 
Mega flops is 10 raised to 6. Giga flops is 10 raised to 9. Tera flops, beta flops, and so on. So very high processing power, right? That's what it is. Uh, like I said, it's, process, it's possible to build yourself a supercomputer on the cheap. All you have to do, you have to spend some money, of course, but not the kind of billions of dollars you would imagine. All you should you have to do is, you know what a PS5 is, PlayStation 5. A PlayStation 5 has extremely high processing power. Buy a thousand of those. Yeah, it's expensive, but it's not as expensive as building a supercomputer. Uh, what does a PS5 cost? 50,000 rupees? You buy 10 of that, it's uh, 5 lakh. 100 is 50 lakhs. So a thousand of these would cost about 5 crore rupees. You take them apart, take the processors. You need to do some hacking, some, some black magic, obviously computer black magic and you tie these processes together you bring them together and make them process in parallel there you have your own supercomputer a very powerful supercomputer so it's been done people have done this with the ps2 20 30 years ago 20 years ago ps2 was the older one of the older versions of the of the playstation it was possible to take 100 ps2s together piece them together and create a supercomputer out of, out of that a very good supercomputer so it's possible to do this on the fly on the cheap I say, why can't the IITs have a yearly budget and a yearly competition? The Indian Institutes of Technology, which are currently investing in the humanities for, for whatever reason. Eliminate the humanities departments. IITs are for technology, not for humanities. Use that money, invest it in a yearly competition. Every, uh, every IIT gets a certain amount of money, a few crore rupees, to build their own supercomputer. Yeah? You have one year every year to do this. And then at the end of the year, we're going to compete. Which supercomputer among all the IITs has the best power, the best, uh, is, the, is, the, is the most powerful. And then you get a big prize and you can start your own startup or whatever. Why can't we do that sort of thing? It's not that expensive. It, it takes a little bit of leadership and vision, which we are currently lacking. Our IITs, our, our, all the, the entire academic system is run by people with a bureaucratic mindset. People who want status quo, people who are not ambitious, unfortunately. That's what's happening. All it we have the money in the country. We have the money. It's just the mindset that's that's problematic. It will take a little bit of leadership and a little bit of ambition to change this, this entirely. And of course, now we have AI, we have machine learning, we have neural networks. We can use all that on supercomputers. We also have quantum computing. I don't think we are doing anything in India vis-a-vis. Uh, -vis this new emerging field of quantum computing. Quantum computing is not that easy. You need extremely low temperatures to, to have a quantum computer because you need to uh, create quantum superpositions super and sustain those superpositions in order to do quantum computations using qubits. So that is a different field. You need cryogenic temperatures for that. So at least, I mean, that also should be certainly invested in. I think there was some initiative, but the, the amount of money they were putting into it was laughable, unfortunately. So it, India can still become a major global power in supercomputers, in quantum computing in the next 10 years, provided we, we have the right leadership and, and the right attitude and the right ambition. And we do some restructuring of our academic institutions. It's very much possible. It's still possible today. Let's see. Chetan says, since we humans aren't centrally connected, how is it that we all have unique fingerprints and DNA apart from identical twins in some cases? Is it possible that two people can have the same fingerprint? Uh, 
I'm not sure how fingerprints are created. I think there's some there's a uh I don't think there's an exact code for your exact precise fingerprint in your DNA. It's something that happens. Uh, I'm not sure what the process, biological process is that gives rise to everyone's unique fingerprints. What we do know is that uh, fingerprints are reasonably unique. Uh, one in 10 million. So if you take 10 million people, the probability is that only, that roughly, maybe 6 million, maybe 4 million, maybe 10 million. I'm just giving you a ballpark figure. So the probability, let's say it's 10 million. So the probability is that if you take any random 10 million people, let's say, all of them will have unique fingerprints. But if you take 20 million people, maybe two of them will have fingerprints that match. So I think, and the same goes for DNA. DNA fingerprinting, the, the, the old term for the technique. Uh, so if you have a population of seven, what is the population of the earth now? Seven billion. Some people will have fingerprints that match and some people will have DNA that match. So let's say the chance is one in 10 million. Then in a country like India with 1.4 billion people, there could be 140 people that have the same DNA as me and the same fingerprint as me. It is possible. And if you look at the entire population of the world, you have to multiply by, the, by a certain figure and you will come. So DNA is not entirely unique. It is possible that people just randomly may have the same DNA and the same fingerprints. It is possible. Statistically, it is possible. That's all I can offer you. I'm not sure how exactly it, it, it happens that your unique, unique uh, fingerprints are created. I'm not sure what the process behind that is. Um, maybe if you if you look into the biological uh, uh, dynamics, mechanics of this, you may get an idea of how it happens. Udit says, what would be the reaction of space core from different countries if they found multicellular organisms on other planets? Um, 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 I think only one nation that I know of has a space core. That is the United States, a space force, which is a, which is a branch of the US military. Uh, the U.S. Space Force was created on the orders of uh, the 45th president, Mr. Trump. Um, I'm not sure if the Chinese have a Space Force, Space Corps, whatever you want to call it. If they do, then maybe two countries have it. India doesn't have a Space Force officially and so on. So let's talk about what would be the reaction from the scientific community in different countries. Um, let's say we find unmistakable undeniable evidence of multicellular primitive microorganisms on let's say Titan or let's say Enceladus or Europa or Pluto or maybe Mars, maybe Venus. What would be the reaction? Firstly, not a great deal of surprise, but very high amount of excitement. That would be incredible. The first time in human history we have discovered this. So the excitement levels will go through the roof. Surprise, not so much. Because it's, it, I think it's quite likely, if you, if you, from the from the biological perspective, it's it's reasonably likely that there could be primitive microbial life on these various uh, parts of the solar system. So, uh, multicellular organisms like microbial animals that would not be a great cause of concern. That would not cause a great amount of surprise. It would create cause cause great excitement. And microbial life doesn't pose any kind of threat to our planet, to our species, to our uh, ecosystem, environment. So, yeah, it would not cause any, any major concern. Yeah. 
but yes it would it would uh, make us see the universe in a whole different light that yes now we know there is light uh, there is life apart in in places other than the earth which could indicate that life is quite common so i think it could perhaps be a matter of time that we detect something in the next half century 100 years maybe in our own solar system it's possible it's it's possible there could be microbial life intelligent life is a whole different thing that would set off all kinds of alarm bells intelligent life is potential danger you have to treat it as a potential danger let's say you're walking in a forest in the middle of the night complete darkness and you see somebody approaching you what's going to be your initial reaction fear your hair will stand up <coughs> goosebumps your immediate reaction is going to be fear unless you don't care for your own survival because in the dark forest when you see something approaching you you have to assume it's going to be a threat to you that's the only way you can ensure a survival that's the dark forest theory or world view which says the entire universe is like a dark forest everyone's hiding because they know any potential intelligent life that you encounter could be a could be a, a mortal threat for you so uh, if we encounter if we discover microbial life multicellular organisms it's not going to be a cause of concern if you detect signs of intelligent life that is incredibly dangerous so whole different perspective but yeah you discover life even microbial life it tells you there's a high likelihood that there could be more evolved life in other places which again should elevate your threat status akash says do you think coding programming is becoming or will become an absolute skill in the near future i've seen experts on both sides of the arguments some claim that it's an essential skill that should be taught to every child right from an early age just like math others say this idea is being blown blown out of proportion i think the reaction and the response and the kind of uh, argument that you see depends on the age of whom you are asking older people will typically say it's not important younger people will say it's an integral part of the future so how do we see this it depends are computers going to be around forever in th- for the foreseeable future yes are most problems in the world now being solved via computers and via by programming yes from that perspective one would have to say that yes coding programming is going to be important quite important it's a skill that is as easy to learn as mathematics it's just logic in a certain way obviously some people will have a better aptitude some some people may not be so good at it naturally inclined to that and so on but as long as computers are going to be a part of the future as long as more and more problems are going to be solved through programming through coding through computers through software as long as that sort of future is in the offing i think coding and programming is something that we need to inculcate in in children who want to do well in life uh of course uh manufacturing and all those other skills are also important without that you cannot build computers and so on research is important but when it comes to problem solving it's all about solving problems today more many of the world's problems many of society's problems can be solved through computing through computers so as long as that happens computing i mean uh, coding and programming is going to be very important so i think we can all envisage a world in which computers become more and more an integral part of our life they become ubiquitous 
we will have augmented reality we'll be able to wear glasses that show us a whole lot more about the world that we can see right now if that future is the future which it seems to be then computing uh, then programming and uh, encoding is going to be important so i think that yes it, it is a good bet from my perspective that programming and computing is going to be an essential skill if you want to do well in life you need to have that in your skill set you may want to be a philosopher you may want to be a poet you may want to be be somebody who tinkers with physical equipment or or you may be want to be a teacher etc even in those occupations programming could be an asset so yes overall i would agree with the, the with the camp that with those who are in the camp that uh, that says that programming and encoding is important it's going to be a very very valuable skill in the future so yeah i agree with that Saurav says there's a big debate about what depression actually is, whether it's a mere chemical fluctuation or something deep rooted, which also involves sociological factors. Uh, do Indian medical systems like Ayurveda have definitions of depression and other psychiatric illness in general? Um, depression could have a physical cause, like like I mentioned some time ago. Somebody has an undiagnosed brain injury. Somebody is a tumor that that's growing in the brain. Somebody is a cyst in the brain that can affect the brain chemistry, the brain functions. That can cause very strange behavior or abnormal behavior. That can manifest itself as depression or or something worse. Yeah. So yeah, that can have chemical uh, causes. On the other hand, there are people who have completely normal uh, brain function that also have depression. what is the cause of that there are certain scientists who like to say that all emotions and thoughts are chemical reactions that is a hyper simplistic and idiotic view of the world we don't understand anything about the brain we understand next to nothing about it about it we don't know where consciousness comes from we don't know really where emotions come from yes it's possible to modulate emotions using chemicals uh, there are certain drugs that are available for for uh, depression I'm not sure what it's called prozac is it and there are, there are there are things like dmt like lsd that cause various brain reactions and and feelings of euphoria and so on these are drugs so yes you can certainly affect the change the mood emotions well being mental well being emotional well being using chemistry using chemicals but that doesn't solve the long standing problems that a person may have so we don't know what depression is we don't know what it is but there is something called schizophrenia paranoid schizophrenia all kinds of mental problems some of them could have a physical cause an actual cause alzheimer's disease is obviously a deterioration of the brain tissue um but yeah it, it's still something that's not very well understood i would disagree that everything is about chemistry i don't agree with that uh do indian systems like ayurveda have definitions of de- de- depression i am not sure about that we have lost a lot of our information and data about ayurveda uh so yeah we don't know much about this unfortunately but i would not agree there is no clear definition of depression maybe depression comes in various there could be multiple causes of depression uh sometimes depression is caused by external factors the circumstances in a person's life if a person sees no hope is is trapped in a hopeless situation that can certainly cause depression the loss of will to live and so on so it has multiple causes there could be chemical causes there could be physiological causes there could be external causes it's a very complex topic so that is what i can say about this 
Royt. T1 says, does India need more computer science engineers or more physics professors or physicists? Very nice way of putting me on the spot, yeah? <laughs> Look, the world needs, India needs more engineers. Whether it's computer science engineers, whether it's actual civil engineers or whatever other engineers. Progress happens through technology. Technology is developed through engineering. The concepts are what comes out of physics. The conceptual breakthroughs, quantum mechanics, relativity, which is all being used in various technologies today, that came from theoretical physics. So all the major conceptual breakthroughs happen through theoretical physics typically. Then it makes its way into experimental physics like nuclear physics, nuclear reactors and all, and eventually technologies come out of it and they spin off into the civilian sphere. So typically theoretical physics is about 50 to 100 years ahead of any actual engineering application and technological application. Without physicists, these things can't happen. But the actual work of bringing this technology to the, to the society is done by engineers. So maybe we need 1% physicists and 99% engineers. That's the, or maybe 2% physicists and 98% engineers. Engineering is something that doesn't take a lot of, well, what's the word to use? Intelligence? Uh, maybe you do need to be very intelligent to be engineers as well. But yeah, it's a certain aptitude. And typically the kind of, um, yeah, so I would say 2% physicists and 98% engineers. That's what the world needs. And that's what India needs. India needs a lot more engineers, a lot more engineers to build the nation all over again. Yeah, right. Um, um, what else do we have? Yash says, what's the difference between intuitive understanding and mathematical understanding? Is mathematical understanding opposite of intu in intuitive understanding? Where we cannot apply one and use the other. Um, you know, there are two kinds of scientists, two kinds of mathematicians. There is one kind of mathematician who takes a big problem and he or she uses the entire toolkit of mathematics at their disposal to kind of try and solve the problem. Use differential equations, use linear algebra, use whatever else, you know, matrices, whatever. Uh, number theory and so on. Galois theory, whatever. You use the entire toolkit, the entire corpus of mathematical knowledge that you have and you try to make progress towards solving that problem. That is mathematical understanding. Logic, pure logic codified in the form of mathematics. There's a different kind of mathematician as well. A very rare kind of mathematician. They see the solution first and then they have to, they know what the solution is. It appears to them in their, in their mind's eye, intuitively. Ramanujan used to say, that it was his goddess, Namagiri, who used to come to him in his dreams and give him these incredible equations that people are still researching. So there is this, and there, is, there was somebody like John Forbes Nash, the great Nobel Prize winner who won a Nobel Prize in, in economics for the Nash equilibrium. He was that kind of a mathematician. He also unfortunately suffered from schizophrenia for some time. So there's this very rare genius level mathematician who sees the solution, the answer first they know it's right. And it's always proven to be right eventually. They see the answer first, they write it down or whatever, and then they have to spend weeks, months, maybe years figuring out the mathematical proof 
that proves that their answer is correct. That is the difference between intuitive understanding and mathematical understanding. Intuitive understanding is all about, all about flashes of insight. Wow. Oh yeah, that has to be true. I know it's true. My gut tells me it's true. And then I have to find a way of actually proving it through mathematical logic. Right? That's the difference. Okay, let's take a couple of um, live chat questions. We are almost at the end of today's thing. Uh, today's uh, session. If you have questions, let me know in the live chat. Questions about science, technology, etc. Okay, there's an interesting pat uh, interesting perspective here. Not intuition, but seeing patterns and putting those patterns together on paper. Intuition comes from internalizing a lot of patterns. You don't become a genius level, mathem level mathematician just because you're born intelligent. You have to spend hundreds of hours, thousands of hours studying mathematics. When you spend hundreds and thousands of hours studying mathematics, solving problems, those mathematical patterns that get ingrained into your subconscious mind. And that's what gives you, that's how you earn those genius level flashes of insight. Because of all the patterns you have internalized, that is also your intuition. You go somewhere, you know something is wrong, get out of here. That's also intuition. You don't, you cannot see something is wrong, but it's your ingrained ability to recognize patterns that tells you that something is off in some situation. So yes, it's about patterns, but you have to earn the ability to recognize those patterns and to gain those flashes of insight through incredible amounts of hard work. Right. Um, what's the God particle? It's not a particle that came from some God. This term, the God particle, was coined by some, some science journalist or some journalist. The God part, the so-called God particle is the missing boson, the Higgs boson that imparts mass to the universe. So it was uh, its its existence was was theorized maybe 50 or so years ago by Peter Higgs. And particle physicists have been searching for it ever since. And it's only in the last decade, in the past few years, that, that it was actually discovered in the Large Hadron Collider. So it is. In quantum field theory, every fundamental particle has its own field. It's Let's say you have protons. Protons are essentially nothing but excitations in the proton field. Electrons are local excitations in the electron field that permeates the entire universe. The protons in my body are part of an infinite field that permeates the entire universe and it is the field of the protons. Similarly, there is a Higgs field that permeates the entire universe. And the particles that interact with the Higgs field or the Higgs boson, which is a local excitation of that field, the particles that interact with the Higgs field acquire mass. And the particles which are unable to interact with the Higgs field remain massless. That's the Higgs field, the Higgs particle, the Higgs boson. And that's what some journalists, I believe, called the God particle. So now everyone thinks it's some supernatural thing or something. No, it's not. No, it's not. Okay, let us take uh, maybe a couple of uh, questions more. Um, is our universe in an atom? Is our universe, is 
one could think of it as some kind of atomic thing yeah possibly from a certain perspective possibly some people ask whether the universe is a black hole we are all inside a black hole well you know there are problems to that sort of um, scenario because first of all the universe is expanding if you have a black hole it's not expanding yeah we have the expansion of the fabric of space time we know it's happening inside a black hole there is no such process so that's sort our of thing and once again the atomic uh, thing is also one interesting way to look look at it if you are a high school student but not quite okay is there any other interesting question grandfather paradox look at my previous one of my previous episodes i have gone into that in detail do a live session this is a live session we are live hello this is live i'm talking live I, this is not this is not recorded maybe you're saying video session is that what you're saying well that is problematic why are video chat pro- sessions problematic because <laughs> firstly uh, i don't get to select the questions so very often you have questions that have already been answered lots of times people ask me all over again so that doesn't give provide value to you the audience it provides value to the person who is asking the question only to one person my intent in doing all of this is to provide some genuine value to as many people as possible i can do that by picking new questions each time in these video chat sessions what, what happens very often is that i get repeated questions that have been answered many times secondly some people want to ask multiple questions they want to spend as much time as possible on the screen with me i i have nothing against that but i want to give a chance to as many people as possible in as short a time as possible so it doesn't always work that way in video video chat sessions so that's why i have stopped doing that maybe i will bring that back again sometime in the future if there is if all of you want it i can do it do you want it let me know in the comments below not in the live chat in the comments below once this session is over all right with that i think we should bring an end to the session we have again crossed 2 hours always fun answering all of your questions i did a, a twitter session day before yesterday yesterday i think that was great fun a lot of questions a lot of interesting questions so maybe i will do that again next week a twitter session in which i will answer your questions through tweets um so yeah so that brings us to the end of today's session thank you very much all of you great talking to you all and i will see you in tomorrow's session until that uh, until that until then thank you take care bye